looking through the book of Colossians. And I'm excited about this uh, uh, particular sermon, um, which is going to be on Colossians 1, 24 to 2, 5. So I'm going to go ahead and read from that. It can be found in your bulletin, in your insert, if you want to take a look at it. Colossians 1, 24 to 2, 5. This is Paul speaking to the Colossian church. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and am delighted to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. The word of the Lord. I have a secret. Very exciting. It's a secret and involves all of you. You want me to tell it to you? Okay, I'm going to tell you the secret. Okay, I've never told this secret before. You ready? Okay, here's what I want you to do. This is the secret. I want you to reach under your chair because one of you has an envelope under your chair. Now, there are a couple empty seats here, so you may have to reach to your right or to your left, but you've got to reach under your chair. And if you have the envelope, raise your hand. No, no, it's an envelope under your chair taped to the chair. It's taped to the bottom of your chair. Everyone's like, I got an envelope, Carlos. What are you doing? Taped to the bottom of your chair. Oh, I see it. I see it right here. Okay, go ahead and open up there. The secret revealed what could be in the envelope. And the winner of the Academy Award is James Franco. Five bucks, five bucks. Let's give her a hand. Why did I give this woman five bucks? Because I wanted to. That's right. I love secrets, don't you? Secrets are the best thing of all. You know, someone comes along and says, I got a secret I want to tell you. Instantly, our ears kind of perk up. What's the secret? I want to know. You can remember as a kid, you know, when somebody had a secret and you wanted to know, and, but everyone else knew it, but you didn't. And you went and you asked him, hey, what's the secret? We can't tell you. And how frustrating and upset you were because you couldn't be in on the secret. Well, I want to talk about secrets today, specifically one secret, and it's the biggest secret. It's the most important secret. You know, there are lots of secrets out there that we're trying to figure out in our life. Who am I going to marry? 
What sort of job am I going to do? What am I going to do when I'm this age? They're all secrets. We don't know. They're hidden from us. But there's one secret that trumps all the other secrets out there. And I call it the secret of life. Where do we go to find love and fulfillment? Where do we go to find destiny? It's a, it's a secret because it's so hard to find, isn't it? I mean, if you go to Barnes & Noble, you go into the bookstore, and you'll see literally walls of books devoted to telling you what the secret of life is. But it's very hard to figure out. You know, when I was a 23-year-old, I set out to figure out the secret of life. And here's what I did. I thought I knew the secret of life, and so I wrote it down, and it was a compilation of everything I was going to do in my life. Everything I wanted to achieve, everything I wanted to accomplish was right here. And I thought I had the secret. It was simple. If I just do what's on the paper, I will go ahead and I will have the life that I'm looking for. So there were such wonderful things as diving the Great Barrier Reef, which I wanted to do. I wanted to hike the Appalachian Trail. I wanted to learn to play the soprano saxophone. I wanted to see all the major art pieces of the Western world. And I wanted to take my wife to an Austrian waltz. Where did that come from? <laughs> you know, as I look at this piece of paper now, looking back, I realize how ridiculous some of these things were. I don't want to go and do that. And as I've gone through the list and I've been able to do some of them, I've realized that they just weren't enough. That even though I thought I had unearthed the secret of life, it just wasn't enough. And so the secret continues to elude me. Where can we find the secret? See, many of you, like me, have a list like this somewhere in here. Maybe it's not written down, but it's in your heart somewhere. Maybe you have what I call the beautiful secret. If I can be a beautiful woman, if I can be the wife that I want to be, if I can entertain like Martha Stewart, and I can cook like Rachel Ray, if I can be this image of the perfect woman, then I will have discovered the secret. Maybe for some of you other folks who are more career-minded, all I need is Frank's job. If I can have Frank's job, and I can have Frank's uh, position and Frank's office, granted I'll have to kill Frank, but if I can take Frank's stuff and end up in Frank's place, then I will have found the secret. Where do we find the secret? The reason I love this passage is because in this passage, the secret has been revealed. And it hasn't been revealed to the religious people. It hasn't been something that we've figured out. It's rather been something that God has disclosed. Look, to them God has chosen to make known among the, rich, uh, the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, the one thing that we're searching for, the secret, in all of our life is Jesus Christ. He's the one we have been looking for, and therefore, we must accept no substitutes. We're going to look at three things in this sermon. The first thing we're going to take a look at is, what is this secret? What is this hope of glory? What does it mean? And then we're going to look at our second point, which is, how do we get it? So if this is what it is, how does it become mine? And then finally, we're going to look at point three, which is how do we live today in the secret that we have? 
So three points there, but the main point, the one thing you have been searching for all your life is Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept no substitute. Well, let's look at the first point. Her name was Elizabeth Gilbert, and she had everything a modern woman was supposed to dream of having. A husband, a house, a successful career, and yet like so many people, she found herself lost. Newly divorced, she set out on a self-discovery journey to try to find herself. Many of you are familiar with this book, I'm, or this movie I'm talking about, Eat, Pray, and Love, which uh, was starring, um, what was her name? Julia Roberts, thank you so much. Julia, or this gal Elizabeth Gilbert, embarks on this journey around the world to try to figure out the secret of life. She goes to Italy where she discovers the pleasures of sense and of eating and of companionship and she experiences this element of her life, but it's not quite enough. So she continues her journey. She goes to India where she struggles to learn to pray and to meditate and to find wholeness and uh, inner peace. And then finally she goes to Bali where she falls in love with this new guy and she's struggling with love and peace and so forth and all of these kind of things and at the end of the day she realizes that this journey has been a path for her to get herself in a place where she's able to be loved and to love and the movie ends as all wonderful Hollywood movies do she goes off with him and they live happily ever after now this movie actually has a good truth in it has one very strong truth in it and it has one very strong lie. The strong truth that it has is that the most important thing in the world is love. Love is supreme. The Beatles were right. All you need is love. Love is all you need. The Bible itself says it that these three remain, uh, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. We intuitively understand that love is the greatest thing because things cannot satisfy, can they? At the end of the day, your plane or your car or your home or your boat can't love you back. And we were designed to be loved. In fact, the uh, scientists have discovered, uh, medicine, medical professionals, that we have to have love to live. 1940s, uh, there weren't a lot of people around. In the orphanages in the United States, they, they discovered something very strange, that these babies who were being take, taken care of, these infants, were dying for no reason that anyone could figure out. They were being fed, they were being clad, uh, uh, clothed, they were warm, they were cared for, they were changed, and yet they were dying. So they just made one change. They brought in some other uh, ladies to come in and just hold the babies a little bit. Because before they were just sort of changing them, sent them there, just to hold the babies. And the infant mortality rate dropped to zero overnight, just like that. They even have a condition for it. It's called marasma, without love. See, we were designed to be loved. Love is the center of life. That's, this, this part of the movie is important, and it's correct. But the big question is, who do we receive love from? And that's where this movie goes south. Because the message that's consistently from Hollywood is if you can find that man, if you can find that woman, if you can find that special somebody else, then you will have discovered the secret of life. Well, we have discovered that that is not true. 
No other person can give us the love that we deeply need and desire to discover the, need, uh, the secret of life because we need a love that can only come from God. And we see that love revealed in this passage, this hope of glory, this secret, this hope of glory. Now, this word glory in the original language means splendor. It means recognition. It means worth. It refers to value that has been assigned to someone by someone else. See, in the secret that's revealed, there's a hope of glory that we can experience. The greatest hope. We kind of see this blessing sometimes in our kids. I don't know if you have kids, but you know, your kid will go and they'll be playing soccer, they'll be in lacrosse, and they'll score a goal. And what's the first thing they'll do? They'll look back at you. Did you see what I did? Do you, can you assign me glory and value for what it was that I just did? See, that's the, the, the deepest thing we need. All of life is a veiled attempt to receive the glory of God. Everything that we do, your job, your attempts, your recognition, even seeking love from other people is a veiled attempt to settle this question with God. God, will you give me glory? Will you give me splendor? Will you give me life? You see, the mystery of how to receive the glory of God has been revealed. And it hasn't been revealed to religious people, not to folks who have it all together, that we can instead have the glory and recognition from God that we so desperately need. I remember the date. It was June 11, 1994. That was the date that my wife and I got married. Now, I had dated other girls in college uh, and in high school, but had come to the conclusion that this was the one for me. And so I set my affection on Lee Ellen, and I asked her to marry me. And we wanted to have this big wedding in Roanoke, Virginia, where all of our friends were there, and we were going to be together, and uh, she was so excited, and we planned, and it took 10 months, which I thought was way too long. Don't go 10 months, five months, just a short comment. We thought it was way too long, but the time finally came. And I remember I'm down there at the, you know, I'm, I'm there at the altar with the pastor, and uh, all my people are there. I'm in the suit, and there comes the music. And the doors open, and there she is. The white gown, the flowers, the sunlight coming in, and she's walking in. And do you know how she looked? Glorious. She looked glorious. Why does a bride look so beautiful? Is it the clothes? Is it the hair? No, it's more than that. It's her radiance from the love that has been bestowed upon her by her spouse-to-be. See, that's what this is about. The hope of the glory of God, that God would look at me in such a way that he would bestow on me the glory and the honor and the splendor. That is the secret of life. Let me ask you, what's on your list? We have all sorts of neat things, great things, but where is God's glory on your list in regard to the secret of life? Because that is the most important question. If we're seeking for other things, we're simply seeking for symptoms. If we haven't settled the question, where am I to receive the glory of my existence? Without God's splendor, life is a farce. 
but with God's glory, life is glorious. Well, I want to move into the second part. If we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and the glory of God has been revealed, how do we get it? Year 2006, Oprah Winfrey made an announcement on her next show that she would unveil the secret to making money, losing weight, finding the love of your life, and achieving job success. Millions, needless to say, created quite a stir in America and around the world, and millions flocked to see what Oprah had to say. You may re remember she showcased a book appropriately called The Secret. The Secret, which went on to become a runaway bestseller in the year 2006, outselling even Harry Potter's book of that year. The Secret, which was written by Australian Rhonda Byrne, Byrne, excuse me, Byrne, 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 I don't know, Rhonda Byrne, was essentially the law of attraction. And the law of attraction functions something like this. Everything in the universe is functioning on a certain frequency. And when she used the word universe, she kind of meant God. Everything was functioning on a certain frequency. And if your thoughts were in that frequency, you would attract that to you. So wealth is functioning on a certain frequency. And if you think wealthy thoughts, if you think of wealth, you will attract wealth to you. Correspondingly, if you think of debt, you will attract debt to you as well. The law of attraction. Byron said that nothing good or bad can come into your experience unless you summon it through persistent thoughts. Well, this is utterly incompatible with this scripture right here. Because the scripture tells us that we don't summon it to ourselves. In fact, it says that a mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, to them God has chosen his decision to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. In fact, Paul said, I have been given a commission to present the word of God in its fullness. So what this means is that all of history has been leading up to this. Everything in the past, everything in the past of this book, the creation of Adam and Eve, uh, the dealings with Moses, the dealings with Abraham, the dealings with Noah, God calling an Israelite people to himself have all been shadows of this mystery that is to re be revealed. And what is that mystery? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, this substance of revelation by God is not a technique. It's not a program. It's not a procedure. It's a person. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Look at verse 28. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we can present everyone perfect in Christ. Why is Christ the hope of glory? Because Christ is glorious. Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. See, Jesus had a unique position regarding God. He was the only begotten Son of God. It was scandalous when Jesus would walk around because he'd refer to God as my Father. In my Father's house there are many rooms. I will pray to my Father for you. It was absolutely scandalous. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist, he's been baptized, and as he's coming out of the Jordan River, a, a dove descends on him. 
and a voice speaks from heaven that says, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. You see, the Father is pleased with Jesus and bestows glory on him. And in Christ, glory has come to us. Notice it doesn't say Christ, the hope of glory. It says Christ in you, the hope of glory. And how does Christ's glory come to us? It comes through suffering. Verse 24, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Christ suffered for you. In order to make us glorious, Christ had to become unglorious. He was whipped and beaten and received the crown of thorns. He was nailed to a cross. See, in order for us to become the beloved, he needed to become the despised. And in order for us to become special and cherished, he had to be treated as a common criminal, to be rejected by God so that we might be accepted. See, all the cross is, is a great transfer. Isn't that an interesting word? It's a crossing, a crossing of life for death. And why did Jesus do this? Because he loved us. The result of Christ's death and suffering on the cross for us is sonship and daughtership. Galatians 4.4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. I remember when I decided I wanted to ask Lee Ellen to marry me. I was ready. It was time. There was only one problem. No diamond ring. Okay, got the heart. Don't have the diamond ring. Okay, and I was like, look, I got to have the ring in order to propose. You ever thought how weird that is? Why we give people a ring with a diamond on it to tell them we want to marry them? Think about that. I think it's because a diamond is of, uh, is of very rare, and it's very expensive, and it's very beautiful. And it's communicating to that other person, here is the value representative of the value that I want to bestow upon you by asking you to be mine. I think the ring is also a symbol of remembrance. As you're walking along, the woman looks at her ring and she remembers how the man feels for her and is able to communicate to the world as well how this one feels about me. So I needed to come up with a ring because no ring, no Lee Ellen. And so I slaved and I scrimped and there's no going out, and I'm working and working and working like a dog trying to save up enough money so I can get this ring for Lee Ellen. Finally, I got the ring, just the one I wanted. And so it was time. And so I invited Lee Ellen to the steps of the rotunda of the University of Virginia where I had planned a dinner for her because no self-respecting cavalier would ask a woman to marry her except on the steps of the University of Virginia rotunda. And so we sat and we dined, and we enjoyed our company, and then I set in the middle of the table a treasure box. And in this treasure box, as she opened it up, there was a bunch of these kind of fake jewels and stuff. And as she put her hand through and she went through, she felt the box. And as she did it, she opened up, she saw the box, you know, I went down on the knee, and, uh, and we live happily ever after. <laughs> See, she saw the ring, and she knew. She knew it was for real. 
How did God confer his love upon us? It wasn't a proclamation. It wasn't a letter that he sent. It wasn't a giant sign in the sky. No, God sent a living ring. God sent his son. Christ is God's diamond ring. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And since you are no longer a slave but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. See, Christ coming to us, Christ coming into us by his Holy Spirit has set a deposit in our hearts so that we can know what God thinks of us, so we can be transformed into the person, the beloved, the glorious one in Christ. See, what I've discovered in this list is there are a lot of great things on it, but none deserve the title of ultimate thing. There must be only one supreme thing on my list, and that is Christ in me, the hope of glory. What is your diamond ring? What is the one thing that you hold dearer than anything else? How do you know? Well, it's simple. It's the thing that you keep looking at. You ever seen a bride-to-be with her diamond ring? Constantly looking, isn't she? Constantly looking, constantly waving, constantly showing around. That's the thing that she holds dear because it's a symbol of the love between her and her man. See, Christ is God's diamond ring. He's the proof of God's glory. So don't settle. Stop scanning the list for other things. Counterfeit junk compared to the real McCoy. Stop giving your heart to your possessions, to other people, to other things, when what you need most is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you're not a Christian yet, if you've never given your life to Christ, I want you to know that the mystery of God has been revealed, that God wants you to himself and he's willing to pay the price of his very own son. It's only Christ in you that gives you the hope of glory. And if you're a Christian, look at the ring. Maybe it's kind of become dull and you haven't watched over it and taken care of it. Be careful not to be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. It's Christ's love and Christ's love alone that is sufficient. The one thing you have been searching for all of your life is Jesus Christ. So accept no substitute. Well, this brings me to my final point, which is living in the secret. How do we live out this life if we have discovered the secret? See, I believe this passage is about more than just finding the secret of God's glory. I believe it's about living in it. And Paul here shows us how to live in the secret of God's glory. Look in verse 24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now is Paul somehow saying here that Christ's work is somehow incomplete? That somehow what Christ did on the cross just wasn't enough? that Paul needs to somehow add a little something for it to make, be sufficient. No, that's not what Paul is saying. In fact, that would be utterly inconsistent with all the rest of Paul's theology. He's already said that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, that we proclaim him and not ourselves. So what is Paul really saying here? What Paul is saying is that the work of Christ is sufficient 
to bring the love of Christ to his people. But somehow this message has to get out. Somehow this message has to move from Jerusalem out into the world. And I am the one who's going to help do it, even if it costs me my life. See, we know from Paul in all of his efforts that he's met with opposition all over the place. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been whipped 39 times, five times. He's been imprisoned. He's spent the night on the open sea. He's been attacked by wild beasts. Paul has laid it all out there to deliver this message. That's what he's talking about. And I think to myself, why would Paul do this? And I think the answer is, Paul has so been captured by Christ's love that Christ's love is causing him to live differently. As Christ has initiated his love in Paul, so Paul is reciprocating his love for Christ in the way that he lives his life. That's what Paul is doing. Paul is growing up in maturity of his love for Christ. See, true love always demands a response. Always. I remember when I got married to Lee Ellen. Some of you have been married before understand this. You get married to somebody else, and it's only then that you discover how selfish you are. You know, you got to live with this other person, and, you know, wait a second, what's up with the toothpaste and the cap deal? I mean, it makes sense that everybody would leave the toothpaste cap off. But no, she didn't like it that way. And Lee Ellen sometimes didn't want to go out. She wanted to stay in, but I wanted to go out. And there's that learning to grow up in maturity in your love for the other person. And if your love is true and it matures and it grows, what you discover is the things that really bothered you, you start doing now. Why? Because you love the other person. That's what's going on here with Paul and Jesus. See, this passage isn't just about being loved. It's about growing in that love. And as we mature in love, we want to go ahead and live in love as well. We must understand, my friends, that love that gives much demands much. See, there's this thinking out there in evangelical America today that I can walk in, Christ gives me all of his love and doesn't demand a thing. What sort of marriage or relationship is that? Did you know that you could give your life to Christ, be 100% sincere about it, and Christ not come into your life? I'll say it again. You could give your life to Christ, be 100% sincere about it, and Christ not come into your life. Now let me unpack that, because some of you are going, what are you talking about? Imagine this. Imagine that I had been dating Lee Ellen for about three years. And one night we're talking, I'm at her apartment, and she turns to me and she says, you know, we've been dating for three years. Where, where are we going with this thing? I say, well, you know, We've been, you know, I've been dating you for a while, but, you know, I date some of these other girls too, and I, I like them as well, and I like you, and I'm just not ready to kind of move to that next level. So she says, well, okay. Next night, I'm at Lee Ellen's apartment again, and I turn to her and I say, Lee Ellen, will you marry me? Lee Ellen says, wait a second. We just had a conversation about this, right? You told me you wanted to date around, you're not quite ready. Yeah, 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 but I've been thinking about this, and you know what? You cook better than they do. No question, you know. You cook better than they do. And, you know, they're, they're slobs. I mean, you have a nice, pretty house. You keep a clean house. And as I've thought about this a little more, I've realized that you are the one for me. 
Lee Ellen's beside herself. Wow, this is unbelievable. Are you saying to me that I'm the one for you, that you're going to stop dating all these other gals, and we're going to go ahead and get married? I said, well, wait a second. I, I didn't say I was going to stop dating these other girls. I just want to get married to you. Lee Ellen says, what? What are you talking about? Now, let me ask you a question. I can order the whole ceremony up. I can get the pastor, I can get the church, I can get the uh, fellowship hall for the reception, I can get the outfits, I can show up on that day. But let me ask you a question. Is Lee Ellen going to show up as well? Heck no. No, no. See, marriage and love is all the way, 100%. Christ gives all of himself to us, and he demands all of ourselves for him as well. So we have to make a decision a love that gives all demands all. What are the areas of your life that Christ is saying, are you willing to give that up for me as well? For some of us, our Christianity is casual. It's a Sunday Christianity. I put on the ring, I go to church. I leave and I take off the ring and I put it there until next Sunday. Now, Christ is calling us to give everything to him because he's given everything of us. That's what it means to mature in our life. So where are the areas of our life where Christ says, I want that too? Christ is the most loving God in the world and he's also the most jealous. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. So we must understand that a love that gives much demands much. Number two, I think this passage always ch also challenges us in living for the secret to respond to his mission. See, as we grow in our faith, the things that bother Christ and make Christ passionate will also make us passionate as well. See, Paul understood Christ's heart for the world, and Paul was willing to suffer for his name to go forth. Let me ask you the question. Do you feel that same passion that Christ has for the world around you? Are you willing to step out of your comfort zone to fill up in your flesh those afflictions for which Christ has filled up for you. That's what it means to grow up in our faith. As our heart grows in maturity of love for Christ, our interests become more and more synonymous with his. Listen, it's a process of growing up. But my challenge as a pastor is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Christ loves lost people. The reason that this church exists today is because people have suffered that it might grow up and spring forth. Whether it was Trinity Presbyterian putting themselves out there financially to start it, Cron and Elizabeth Gibson packing up their whole family, moving from New York to a town they didn't know to try to love people for Christ. There are people in this church that give sacrificially of their time and their money so that this church could grow so that the message of the gospel would go out. And I am asking for more. I'm unabashedly asking for more, that your heart for this community would be the same as Christ for this community. Because I believe Church of the Redeemer is the place that God has set to reach this world around are there other churches? Absolutely. Is God doing a work there? Absolutely. But God has a special calling on this church, and he has a special calling on your and my life. And so I want to challenge you to give. Give of your life. 
in the community where you uh, live and you work and you play. Give of your time. Engage in this church. Volunteer somewhere. Help to lift this church up by giving of yourself. Give of your money. We still are growing financially as a church. We need to continue to do so in order for this church to become where it is. God isn't looking for able people. God is looking for available people. And one of those signs of maturing and growing up in Christ is when our interest becomes synonymous with that of Jesus Christ. Here's my conclusion, and I'll finish with this thought. The one thing that we need is the glory of God. We need his love. We need his blessing. We need his honor. That is the secret that we're looking for. Well, God has given it to us. The secret is out. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Trust in Christ to bring you the love of God and grow in your love for him by being willing to give all for him wherever he asks as he first gave all of himself for you. The one thing you've been searching for all of your life is Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept no substitute. Let us pray. Lord, what kind of God are you that you would love us so much that you would give your only son, that you would bestow glory on us by giving us a diamond ring far more precious than any cost could ever be fathomed. Lord, help us to relish the love that we have with you. Help us to revel in the splendor and the glory we have as beloved sons and daughters of God, all because of the work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to grow and mature in our love, to love back, that as you have loved us, that we would hear and listen and tune in to what your heart is, and that we would want to be so a part of that that our interests would ultimately become synonymous with you. We thank you, Lord, that you have chosen to make known to us the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. All of this we pray by your grace. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, we have an opportunity to respond to God. This is where we give our offering. This is where we financially give to God.